Well, good morning, 4C. My name's Ben. Welcome, welcome. If you're our guest, a special welcome to you. If you call this church home, I've got some good news for you. Um, man, God has been at work. If you're our guest, just give us a moment to do a little family business, if you don't mind. But 4Cers, I wanted to give you a little bit more uh, tangible update than just my brief words last Sunday about our student mission camp. Um, Student Mission Camp is the thing we do every summer where we take middle schoolers and high schoolers. The last three years, we've been taking them on the border of Tennessee and Georgia, right on Lookout Mountain. And our students have worship in the morning together with about 700 other students. They have lunch, and then in the afternoons, they go to mission sites to serve, food bank, community centers, apartment complexes, and they engage kids. They talk about Jesus. They have some structured stuff they do, some unstructured playtime. They come back together, have dinner together, they go to worship service at night, and over the last few years, myself and a couple of the other pastors have been able to engage them in that evening session where we get to hear our students talk about the stuff that God has done in their lives. And you got to see a couple pictures up there. Parents, you'd be so proud, uh, four seers, you'd be so proud of our students. When I was younger, I'd hear my parents sometimes say to me, hey, uh, so-and-so, you know, your friend's parents were talking about just what a wonderful kid you were while you were at their house. And why don't you ever act that way here? Because here, you're clearly not as good as you are. And I don't know how your kids are at home, but man, at camp, they were spectacular. Just really got into it. And to hear, as a pastor, to hear our students talk about the things that God was showing them, how the message touched their hearts, how it is that God has designed them to serve and make a difference, it just made me feel great. And I'm thrilled to partner with all of you in a church that really believes in investing and with parents who believe in investing in their kids. So thank you for that. We're starting today the second message in our series called Seven, where we're looking at the book of Revelation. So last week I got us rolling and just a little warning. I'm going to go fairly fast today because my heart is full. And uh, I love looking at God's word. We're going to do kind of a mixture of some study and application today. For some of you, this will be brand new stuff. And I want to be careful with my words to make sure that they're understood and I bring clarity to God's word. Um, I don't have to make it relevant. The Bible is relevant, but I want to show you its relevance as we look at this couple thousand year old document. But I thought it'd be appropriate if we just before we get started... Um, that we would bow our heads, open up our hearts and our minds to what God might say, and then for me, that God would just give me clarity as I talk. Would you bow with me real quick? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, I'm grateful for this ancient document that we call the book of Revelation, how you revealed yourself in these pages of your word. Our prayer today, Lord, is you'd open up our minds, you'd give me clarity of thought, you'd give me speed in my speech that, Father, you would also open up the hearts of people who are listening, that our ears would be receptive, our minds would be alert, that we would hear what you're saying to us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Revelation conjures up some scary images. Uh, The mark of the beast, 666, dragons and people and fire falling from the sky. It's got some horrific images. It's also got some wonderful images, heaven, um, trees of life, golden streets, God's people gathered around the throne in complete and total unity. It's a wonderful book full of great stuff. But the first part of the book that we're going to spend the next few weeks on is really a bunch of letters, seven of them, to seven distinct churches located in seven different cities. I have a map, actually, I want to show you. There's one in your message notes. There's a similar one up here on the screen. And this map shows you the seven churches that are going to, in the first couple chapters of the book of Revelation, receive a letter from Jesus through the Apostle John. Today, we're going to talk about number one right there. That's Ephesus. Ephesus is a seaport town. We'll talk about it in your message notes that look like this. On the right-hand side, if you open it up, there's some stuff that you can read about the city of Ephesus. But what's cool about the city of Ephesus is that it is the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time, 250,000 people. It's a commerce city. The people are well-heeled. They're well-educated. It's a seaport town so that when goods are coming from Rome or from Asia, uh, from Rome to Asia or from Asia back to the rest of the Roman Empire, most of the time it passes through Ephesus. Ephesus has an auditorium, an outside amphitheater that seated over 24,000 people. It's a big place. It's cosmopolitan. Everybody knows about it. 
It's known for its religious practice. It has the third largest by square footage temple in all of the ancient Roman Empire, temple to Artemis. And uh, the Artemis practice, their religion, stands in stark contrast to the Christian religion. It was a, a, well, it was a sensuality cult, and their practice was very sexual. And then there's that happening, and people are coming all, from all over the Roman Empire to engage in that temple and those practices. And here's this growing, burgeoning church over which now John has responsibility. The interesting thing about Ephesus is, is that I find very interesting is, is that there's several places in the Bible, the New Testament, that refer to Ephesus. So in Acts, around chapter 20, we see how the church at Ephesus was began primarily by the Apostle Paul. And uh, we get a lot of stuff about what was going on in that place. We see that Paul writes a letter to the church at Ephesus, and our Bible is called Ephesians. It's a wonderful book. Ephesians chapter 2 is one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. You can read that if you want this week. And then my favorite books in the Bible, First and Second Timothy, I just like them because in my early years of ministry, it was so applicable. Paul writes a letter to the pastor at the church of Ephesus. His name is Timothy. He's a relatively young and unexperienced leader. And so Paul writes and tells them some stuff about how to do it. And when you read First and Second Timothy, you get a lot of background information about Ephesus. But in Revelation chapter 2, that's where we're going to go. You can go in your Bible right now if you want. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus himself writes a letter through John to the church at Ephesus. Now, by this point, the, book, the church of Ephesus is upwards of 60 years old, perhaps. We don't know exactly. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. We get several generations in. Now, I'd like for you to just think about something for a second. Imagine if Jesus were going to come to you and talk to you about your life. What would that look like? In fact, let me just make it a little bit more specific to how it may have felt to John. Imagine one day going to your mailbox, you open it up, and in your mailbox is literally a letter from Jesus. Do you do what I do when you get mail? Like you see your name or your address there, but then you look immediately up to the upper left-hand corner to see who it came from. I mean, that's what I always want to know. Who's this from? Before I even really know, who's this from? So you get a letter, you know it's from Jesus. Can you imagine how you might feel to open that letter? Like, what's Jesus want to say to me? When I was in high school and I was applying to various colleges and stuff, one day I got two college letters on the same day that were in response to my application. And I was so nervous, so nervous. So I was like, oh, I want to read them. And I just, instead I gave them to my mom. I said, here, you read them. You read them. I don't, I don't know what they want. I don't know what they, the, the amount of excitement and concern, perhaps, trepidation about this. Well, that's exactly what happens to John, who was the Apostle John, who wrote the book of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and what we call the Revelation. As Jesus shows up to him in chapter 2 and says, I want to tell you, John, about these seven churches, that you have responsibility to lead, that you're the bishop over, if you will, and I want to tell you how they're doing. I want to give you a, a job performance and just a moment, we're going to read those words. They're going to be powerful words because they won't just tell us how the church at Ephesus is doing. They'll actually tell us what's important to Jesus at that church, but also our church. In fact, all churches. They're going to tell us what's on his heart. And then we're also going to see how Jesus kind of deals with stuff. And I don't know if you know this or not, but the church, all churches, our churches, we're supposed to model Jesus. And so as we look at Jesus engage Ephesus, we can imagine without much effort, doesn't take a lot of skill or theological implication or, or education to understand how Jesus might want to engage us on similar topics. So before we get into it, there are a little couple background statements. So on your message notes, blank number one, here's what it says. The Lord will always purify his bride, the church. You don't know what Jesus is doing today? One of the things he's doing is he's purifying his bride. Now that phrase I use intentionally, it's a biblical phrase, purify the bride. It doesn't translate to our culture as much, but let me just give you a little ancient Near Eastern Old Test or New Testament stuff and, and, and Old Testament as well. For a, a woman to get married in Bible times, there's a huge deal, like today, but even more so. The average town around Jesus' time had maybe 170 to 100 people in it. And when a person got married, the whole town rallied. And the family would prepare for months. And the bride would get ready for the wedding day. But not just the wedding day. The bride would get ready for life after the wedding day. She would be made complete. They would spend a lot of time. It was very expensive to get cloth. And to get white cloth was even more expensive. 
It was rare, actually, to have white cloth. And all the preparation that went into making the event and setting up the house, all the gifts were about setting up the house so that the bride could succeed, not just on the day, but in the life that she wanted afterwards. All the preparation went into that. The phrase around that and kind of growing into the role of wife, hopefully mother in that day, that was a big deal. Um, All that preparation and all the effort that went into it, it's kind of summed up in the idea of purification, or we might say sanctification, if you want a theological term. If you want an everyday English word, completion, the completion of the church, the completion of the bride. We focus a lot on the day, but back in the day, they focused a lot on that day being the beginning of a life. And so it The completion of the bride, the purification of the bride was about being ready for the day and ready to succeed in her mission as now a wife. So in the Bible, the church is called the bride of Christ. And what Jesus is doing is continuing to purify, to sanctify, to complete his bride so that together they stand in unison on the mission that God has designed them for, Jesus and his bride. If you don't know it and you're a follower of Jesus, you got two things when you gave your life to Jesus and he saved you. You got a relationship with him that's powerful and potent because he's the sovereign Lord of the universe who is alive. And the other thing you got is you got a relationship with his bride, the church. You did. In fact, you were made an automatic member of the invisible universal church, the bride of Christ. Now in our church, we have some formal members and you've agreed that in a formal way, you're on board with the specific way that God works out his mission in our church, but you are already a member of the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. And so sometimes when people say, I don't like the church, I kind of know what they mean, but I also know that their theology is not fully developed because if you're a follower of Jesus, what you're really saying is, I don't like me sometimes. And that might be one of the truest things you've ever said. If you're a follower of Jesus and you say, I don't really like the church, what you're really saying is, I don't really like me. And that's pretty self-aware and obvious because you shouldn't like you all the time. You're not awesome all the time. You're really not. And neither am I. Neither am I. And so it's okay. And when you say basically the church is imperfect, well, A, that's true because here's the thing. You're imperfect. I'm imperfect. We're all imperfect. Of course it is. And let me just press you here just for a second. What makes you think you deserve a perfect church anyway? Why is it you get to be imperfect, but the church has to be perfect? That's pretty arrogant. But one of the things Jesus is doing is he's perfecting you if you'll let him. He's protecting me if I let him. He's uh, perfecting his church if we'll let him. And in fact, he's going to work on that all the time. And when we get to heaven, it's going to get done completed in a minute. That's what's going to make heaven so often. You've heard me say this many times if you attend here. You know why I'm going to like heaven? Because God will have perfected you when we get there. And you're going to be nicer and easier to get along with. He's also going to have perfected me. Which means I'm going to be easier to get along with. And a perfected you is pretty awesome. You, I mean, when you are made fully into the image of Christ, you're going to be awesome. But the truth is, you're not right now sometimes. And neither am I. The most awesome person I know in this earth right now is my wife, Jill. She's sitting over there. If you want to know just one of us, get to know her. She's much better. But she's not perfect all the time. Don't stare at me too hard, honey. All right, so. But one day she's going to get perfected. And one day the church of Jesus Christ is going to be perfected all the way. But until then, he is working on us. So what's Jesus about? He's about perfecting his church because Jesus left the church with a mission. It's right over here on this board. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus says, and I will be with you. They come together, Jesus and the church, always together. That's not just a you to you person. He's just going to be with you, but maybe not with him. Every follower of Jesus, every church, Jesus is with them and he's doing his thing. Now, when Jesus gives a letter to these particular seven churches, here's what's going to happen. You're going to read in them a description of Jesus. We're going to see that right on the front. In fact, all seven letters, there's a description of Jesus. Different ways Jesus says, I want you to know me. I want you to know something about me. 
Remember the book of Revelation from last week? The book of Revelation is really a revelation of Jesus and a revelation from Jesus. It's less about the future and the order of events, although we get a handful of those items. And it's really every single passage, it's really revealing Jesus and God's authority over the world. That's really what the whole book is about. And I summed it up in one sentence for you. If you want to know what it is, two words, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And all through the pages of the book of Revelation, we get really one revelation, singular, it's not the book of Revelations, it's Revelation, and we get one revelation, and it's a revelation of Jesus. And so in each letter to each of the churches, Jesus is going to reveal himself in some unique way. We're going to see that today. And each one of those images he paints tells us something about him. But the other thing we're going to get is a job review of each church, revelation of Jesus and a job review. Do you get job reviews on your job? Sometimes here's how they go in in a lot of places. They go like this. Hey, it's time for your job review. Here's the checklist. One to 10, how do you think you're doing? How do you think you're doing? Here's how I think you're doing. We average them together, good. See you in a quarter or six months or a year. That's not the kind of job description that's happening here. The kind of job description that's gonna happen here is the kind of job description most of us don't want. Jesus, the CEO of his church, you know that, right? He's in charge, it's not mine. One day we were having some conversations with people in the room. This little boy raised his hand here at our church. This happened not all that long ago. He says, who's in charge of this church? And I about spoke and I was going to say, well, I, it's a kid. I, I guess I'm the boss. I, you know, I certainly have accountability. But I paused for a second and I realized I'm not the boss of this church. I mean, I know that. So I just said, the truth is, is Jesus is the boss of the church, but there's leadership in place here and we act in his representation. We're managers of his church, really. That's what's going on here. It's not mine. It's not yours. It belongs to Jesus. And since Jesus is the CEO, he's going to give a job review that's unlike any that really most of us have ever had. It's going to be crystal clear. There's going to be no mushiness in language, none. Direct, we call that candor. It's going to be incredibly direct. He's going to name some things that are crystal clear. Good, we all like that. Here's what you're good at. Here's here's, Here's how you're awesome. I love that when people do that for me. It's not as enjoyable when people say, here's how you're not so awesome. And Jesus is going to do that exactly. In fact, you understand that as a church, we're supposed to model Jesus. And the way Jesus talks with something he's able to do that I'm not always able to do. Incredible truth and incredible love at the same time. Truth spoken in love. Candor and graciousness. Candor and honor. The way he's able to do that really sets the bar for us. And I'm going to tell you, it's rare for me to have ever been in an environment where on a two-way street, there's candor and honor, or honor and can't. It's rare. It's hard. It's something that has to be constantly worked at. I've never known it to be sustained in any relationship permanently. I've never known somebody to arrive at it, and then like they've arrived, and they never slip back. Sometimes Jill and I have very candid relationships. She's very clear with me what I need to know. Very clear. Nine times out of 10, she's also quite gracious. Sometimes, well, I won't talk about her. Sometimes I'm very clear and I'm not always as gracious, but there have been moments, especially going on 30 years, I mean, 29 technically, but approaching three decades. There are times when I have been the perfect epitome of the blending of grace and truth. I had, but once I did it once, I didn't stay there. Every time we have an important conversation, it's extra hard work. I don't know about you. Do you guys, do you guys always do it right? But Jesus always does, always, grace and truth, truth and honor for them and about them. It's it's incredible. And sometimes I think Christians have the notion that to speak bluntly and with candor is somehow less than Christian. It's not. It's often the tone with which we speak. That's hard. But it's also what we do after we speak. Some people say it doesn't matter what you say, just how you say it. There's some truth in that, but it's both what you say, how you say it, and what you do after you say it. That gives really a more full full picture of the heart behind the stuff. So when you read these letters, next message, point blank in your message notes, here we go. The Lord's priorities and love for the church is what's revealed. And you can't read this without knowing that there's a guy here that's deeply committed to his church, his bride. He is, but he's so committed, he's not willing to let things go. He's going to press in. He is, he is. 
Have you been around marriage relationships enough to know that the marriage relationship that never fights is actually not the healthy one? Have you been around enough to know that? There's a naivete in our culture that says arguments and absence of fighting is the proof that you're doing really well. Now, I certainly don't think that constant fighting and ugly fighting is the proof you're doing well, but every relationship has stuff to work through. And you're going to see that here. You're going to see that here. But what's going to be clear is that the priorities of Jesus for his church, not my church, your church, his church, become clear. Now, there are two big scary things that aren't your message notes that I want to just kind of lay out here. When I read these letters, I am simultaneously encouraged. Like, wow, Jesus loves his church. I'm a part of his church. You're a part of his church too. How awesome it is that he's committed. The other thing that hits me almost at the same time is, wow, Jesus loves his church. And he loves it enough to press in. That's hard. You know how hard it is, parents, because you love your kids. And when they're in that middle school to high school range before they're technically an adult and it's time for you not to press in in the same way, you give up control and you have influence. You know how it is. I bet you every parent in the room has done this. I've done it. Let me, so if not you, let me just tell you about me for a second. I know at seasons in my kids' lives there are conversations I need to have. And I hesitate because I know, well, I just know how crazy those conversations can get on occasion. And so I have to decide... I know I need to talk it. I know they need to hear it. But I know if I do, it's going to get a little wonky in our home. And when they were younger, it'd get wonky for 10 minutes, and then ice cream could fix it. But as they got older, ice cream doesn't fix it all. And so there'd be this, like, tension. And sometimes, total embarrassment here, sometimes instead of, like, doing the thing, I'd hold off on the thing because I didn't want to do the thing. I didn't want to have the conversation. I didn't want that reflected whatever was going to happen right? But not Jesus. Wow. Wow. Jesus is able to do what I'm unable to do. And honestly, what I've been, I've never seen anybody do consistently all the time well. The truth all the time, the candor all the time, the honor and the love all the time. He does it very, very well. And that's what we have to aspire to. So with that said, are you ready to open the letter that Jesus has written through John to the church at Ephesus, but not just to them? These words are in our Bible. They are for us. They were written to them, but they are for us as well. Ready? So here's what our Bible says. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now the word angel we discovered last week, the Greek word angelos, is um, translated angel like the heavenly being. It can also be translated without any um, implication or watering down of the word of God is messenger. In fact, angels were messengers and ministers, messengers and ministers, messengers and ministers. That's what they did. And so this letter is going to be written to the angel, to the messenger of the church. So a lot of Bible scholars, when they uh, talk about and interpret this passage, they let us know that this can be a heavenly being, but it can also literally represent the leadership, the messengers in the church who have the responsibility. Now, we discovered in Revelation chapter 1 at the end, I didn't get there last week because there's so much to work through, and today I'm not going to get through everything, but there's so much because there's so much to get through, and I'd love to spend a year here on it. This stuff stokes me. When you guys are bored and falling asleep, I'm still going a mile a minute. That's what happened in first, minute, or first service. It won't happen here, but it does. It happens all the time. I love this stuff. I don't need you to reflect back to me that you're listening. Just the content alone, I'm driven, all right? This is dangerous for a pastor. We're on dangerous ground. Right? But long after we've gotten you know, thinking through this, this process, there's going to be so much stuff left over, I can't hit it all. But what I want you to know right now is, is that in Revelation chapter 1, the stars were told what they represent. The stars represent the leadership of the churches. Now, they're not stars, Hollywood stars. No, 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 no. In fact, this is both a compliment and putting leadership in place. In the heavens, there are several bright lights. There's a sun there's a sun, the brightest. There's a moon. Moon gives off a lot of light, right? And then there are stars. Leadership in a church, in a home, um, in a small group, in a huddle. Leadership is like, biblically speaking, stars. Like they do shine. Uh, 
they do cast light and dark. You can see them no matter how dark it is, right? As long as there's not clouds, but go with the metaphor. Metaphors always fall apart if you push them too far, all right? So, but you can see the stars, but they're not, here's the other side, they're not the sun. Biblically speaking, the role of the sun has already been taken, and it's been taken by the sun. So church leadership is not the sun. Uh, your church leadership here, I'm not the sun. At best, I'm a minor light reflecting, giving off light in dark places. All right? So we have the vision of Hollywood stars, and sometimes there are celebrity preachers and all that, and people. No, no, this is not what that's referring to. But to the messenger, to the star at the church of Ephesus, right. So John's now going to dictate the letter from Jesus to the church leadership at Ephesus. Here's what it says. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. So, pause. Right hand. Uh, Biblically, that's um, honor. The person who sits at the right hand of the king is the second in command. The right hand is the strong hand. In fact, that's so commonplace that in our Old Testament, there were a group of people that were strong left-handed, and they're known for that. They were archers who left-handed arched. I guess, I don't know what you do. They they left-handed shot arrows, and just the fact they were left-handed and had that kind of strength, they were notable. So right hand is strength, lefties, you're out. Sorry, that's biblical. I'm just telling you right now. Um, So right hand is strength, and in the strong hand of Jesus, he holds the stars. That's cool. So moms and dads, you have authority in your home. Uh, That means to some degree, you're in the hand of Jesus, and your authority is sanctioned by and protected by Jesus. This is good. This is good. In, in a church setting, the, the, the leadership of a church is in the hand of Jesus, but it's not their power. It's the hand of Jesus. And the hand of Jesus is a really awesome place to be. And everywhere as a child of God, the Bible says you're made kings and priests unto God in Revelation chapter one. Everywhere you walk in authority, everywhere, everywhere you walk, you walk in the authority as a son or daughter of the king. That comes from, and so the imagery there, this is apocalyptic literature, there's image and metaphor. The imagery is you're in the hand of Jesus. That's a really great place to be. That's comforting. That's reassuring. But it's also scary because it's his hand and his control of what's in his hand. So this is really an affirmation of who's in charge. It's less about the star and it's more about the placement of the star in the hand. So these are the words of him capital H, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and then he walks among the seven golden lampstands. Back to Revelation chapter 1, end of the chapter, we're already told stars are the messengers of the church, and the seven lampstands, they are the churches. And what does a lampstand do? It gives off light in dark places. It gives off light. Listen, this is not so much just theology here, but just practically In the leadership of your home, so goes your church, or so goes your home. And in the leadership of of the church, so goes the church. In the leadership of your small group, so goes the tone and, uh, you know, tenor of your small group. In the leadership of your relationship, your friendship, so goes the friendship. So if Jesus is the supreme leader, all the other leaderships derive their authority from him. All the other influence derives from his influence. And there's kind of a declining thing, but Jesus is making it aware at every level of engagement in his church, it's his. And he walks among, holding the stars, the seven candlesticks. He's walking in his church, which is kind of cool. Like, that's awesome. It's not only his church, he's not some detached CEO who is declaring from an office somewhere what should be done down on the production line. No, he's doing management by walking around, if you will. That phrase became popular in the 80s. He's walking around. He knows what's going on. He's connected. This is great leadership by Jesus, which is comforting. It's great to work on a team like that, but it's also scary because he knows. He knows. In fact, the scariest words, some of them in the New Testament, are the next four words in our text. You may want to underline them in your notes. Here's what it says. Ponder these. I know your deeds. Now, how does he know them? Because he's walking around the seven candlesticks. He's walking around in the church. And when he does, he sees things. He hears things. Remember, God is omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omniscient, all-knowing. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. 
What that means, whether you thought about it or not, in our church and in every other church you've ever been a part of, in every church that is a church, here's the truth. Every time there was a deacon's meeting, he may not show up on the roster, Jesus was in the room. Every time there was an elder meeting, Jesus was in the room. Every time there was a staff meeting, Jesus was in the room. Every time there was a small group meeting, Jesus was in the room. Every time somebody met for some private conversation talking about things, Jesus was in the room. Jesus is in the room right now over there in our nursery as people are holding babies. Jesus is there. Jesus is in this room. It's his church. He walks around the seven candlesticks and he watches and he learns and he knows your deeds. All of us. Now, I don't know about you. Like, I theologically know Jesus knows everything. But when I really ponder about the fact that he knows everything, everything, if I'm just totally honest with you, and I go back over just, say, the last 10 years of my life, that's a little embarrassing. But until you understand that he actually knows everything, everything, your understanding of the grace of Jesus is limited. One of the things that makes the grace of Jesus and his love so powerful is, is that he knows everything, everything. And in spite of that, he still loves completely. He doesn't know some cleaned up version of you. He doesn't know 80% of you. He doesn't know what you want him to know of you. He doesn't know what somebody else knows of you. He sees your deeds, everything. And he loves. Let me be honest with you. I don't have that capacity. I don't. Sometimes I watch the news. I mean, Listen, I'm going to reveal something about your pastor today that the pastor down the street doesn't struggle with. So you might need to go and hang out with him for a while, just straight up, all right? Sometimes I watch the news. I don't even know that person. I just know whatever they said about him on the news. And there's an anger in me that rises up. And I straight up don't love that guy. i just be honest with you. Now, that, there's deficiency in my love sometimes. And there are people I love deeply, but there are moments I don't really love them. Is that true Am I the only one? Some of you are looking like that don't happen to you. I'm, real, I'm really glad you're here because we need you. If that never happens to you, like you're giving lift to the average. Because most of us don't love like Jesus loves. I don't. I clearly don't. But he sets the standard to which I aspire. And I have grace to cover that. And I don't use the grace to keep on not loving. I use the grace in the reality that I just don't love all the way. I don't. I just don't, and neither do you. But Jesus knows your deeds. He knows everything that's gone on. Look at what he says here. I know your deeds, your, and then he's gonna give a list of the good stuff. He's a good manager here. He's a good leader here because he starts with the good stuff, which always scares me when I sit down with somebody to whom I'm accountable and they go, hey, I got some good stuff for you. Let's start with that. Because I know what, when you say start with that, I know what's coming next, right? But that's what you do, right? You start with the good before you... Bring the bad, right? That's what he's going to do here. Look at, look at how awesome this church is. Been going for 60 years. He says, I know your deeds. Your hard work and your perseverance. Now, if you read Acts 20, when the church is introduced, Ephesians, 1 and 2 Timothy, before you even get to this letter, you know there was some stuff going on in that church. You know it. And by the way, even if you've never read that, just because it's a church, you know there's stuff going on, right? Like some of you, you've only been here long enough and you largely think we're pretty perfect other than the pastor speaks too long. Other than that, we're pretty perfect. But I would say, just hang around long enough. We're not. We're not. And I'll be honest, if we could just hire the right people, we'd be fine. Starting with me. Starting with me, we'd be fine. But we're not. We're not perfect. In fact, you never went into a perfect church. In fact, the last church you thought was perfect, you didn't stay long enough or you were too young to know what was going on. That's about all that I could say about that. Right? So, I know your deeds, your hard work, and perseverance. So there was stuff going on. But on the good column, that church was still after it. 60 years in. Our church is 14 years old, or will be. We've been at it about 15 and a half years, but 14, we held our first public service in September. This September will be 14 years ago. And man, I, I can tell you, I'd like to think that if Jesus showed up with us, he'd say, I know your hard work for you. Like I watched you do set up and tear down for eight years. You know, I watched people who were tired, came in on Sunday morning, and they rolled carts of water from a custodial closet 
way down a long con concourse just to serve coffee. They worked hard. They literally broke a sweat by 8 a.m. every Sunday morning, and they did it for years. And I watched people lift stages. In fact, this stage is permanent, but this stage right here is actually part of the original stage we used to sit up and tear down every Sunday. These suckers are heavy. There are, I think, at least 12 sections of four by eight, and we'd set them up every Sunday in the theater. And then uh, we had a little reprieve. We were in a church building that we had adjusted, set up was much easier, and then we went back to a theater. And I know your hard work. There are people all week, all, well, for the last few months, who've been given time to get our space. I know your hard work, Jesus says. And then he says, I know your perseverance, and I like this. Like, you didn't just work hard, but you worked hard when things were hard. That's how you make it to 60 years as a church or 60 years in a marriage. I know this. If you've been married, let me just, I'll lower, you've been married 15 years. Just show our hands. How many people at least 15 years? Good. Let me tell you what I know about you. You can put your hand down. Here's what I know about you. You've persevered because your spouse ain't that awesome. And you aren't either. And you had to work through stuff. And you could have bolted a lot of people do by 15. They do. Sometimes people do need to exit because it's very healthy, but you worked through some stuff. Now, if you've made it to 25 or 45, you have a level of not every day was perfect and not every day was easy, but you pressed in and you stuck with it. And you made decisions sometimes to talk when you didn't feel like talking. And you made decisions sometimes to not talk when you felt like talking. And you made decisions to change things when you didn't feel like changing. And you made decisions to start things when you didn't feel like starting them. And you made decisions to apologize when you weren't completely wrong. That's how you survive in marriage. And believe it or not, in a similar way, that's how churches continue to do the work God's called them to do. They persevere. It's never easy. And everywhere there's a ministry that's thriving. Everywhere there's a ministry that's, that's thriving. There are people who are persevering who would rather sleep in and they get up and do it anyway. And there are people who don't feel like praying every time, but they get on their knees or they bow their head and they pray for the ministry. Everywhere that happens. And so for the Ephesians church, the CEO says on the good column, you're hardworking and you persevere. He says also, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. And I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. Now this is, this is interesting. In our culture, the word the variant of the word tolerate, tolerance, has carry, carries with it emotional meaning. But Jesus says here, and I'm not making a political statement. Do not quote me for your own agenda. In the church, Jesus said there's a point at which tolerance ends. And the tolerance ends in the fight between righteousness and evil. All right? Now, you can, you can assume his words for your political agenda in your Facebook post. Go ahead. Do it. Give you permission. We'll all block you. But anyway, um, that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is, is there's a point in the battle between evil and good that tolerance ends. And Ephesian church, you don't tolerate, notice what he said, not just wickedness. You don't tolerate wicked people. And we don't like to think about that, that there are some people who are a vehicle of evil that can't be tolerated in the church. Now, if you've been around church for a while at all, you know that that's true. You know that there are some people, their brokenness, the season they're in, whatever, and, and to some degree, there's some darkness around it, and it's going in the wrong direction. The Ephesian church had a track record of dealing with those people so that what was going on in them didn't infiltrate the culture of the church. The culture of what was happening outside the church didn't permeate in. Remember, outside the church, there's the Artemis temple, and their church, growth, their church growth tagline went something like this. You want to come to church? Come to our church. It's free sex for everybody. And boy, the church grew by leaps and bounds. That, that was their motto. Free sex for everyone. That's really difficult to be in the shadow of a movement like that. And you're basically saying God's opinion of sex is, is only in marriage and only between a husband and a wife. And outside of that, it's really sin. But the Ephesian church didn't tolerate that and whatever other sins. I just picked on the sex one because that's the big one that was going on in Ephesus. Not only was that, but they would sell idols. In fact, the biggest export from Ephesus in the ancient world were idols of Artemis that you take to your home and bring some of the experience that you had at the temple back with you. That was, that's how you worshiped Artemis. You participated in the fertility cult. 
Very different world. Some people are like, it's getting hard to be a Christian here. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. But woo, I don't have to put up with that in our culture as bad. You know, it's like, that would be crazy. Um, so you don't tolerate that stuff. And you don't tolerate the other goofy stuff. You guys deal with the problems. Now, remember, way back, Paul has started this church. And he has to write to one of the first pastors, Timothy, young guy. Timothy, uh, you got some problems, brother. And I need to remind you some stuff. I love the Bible's boldness and the fact that it doesn't whitewash anything. Hey, Timothy, um, you're timid, and you don't want to deal with stuff. That was way back. But here's the legacy now. You don't put it off. You deal with it. Hey, there's some growth there. Paul says to Timothy, here's how you're going to deal with stuff. Preach the word. Read, read First and Second Timothy over and over again. Preach the word. Timothy, you got a problem? I want you to remember the gifts that were given to you by the laying out of hands. I want, to remember what, I want you to remember what your mother and your grandmother prophesied over you. Maybe Timothy didn't have a father. We don't know. But, so maybe he's from a single mom. I want, to remember, I want you to remember how you didn't have an auspicious start. But I want you to rise up in boldness. And here's how you do it. You preach the word. And that church was known. At this time, when Jesus is giving them a bold review of being a word-preaching church, taking a stand on the evils of the culture outside and the evils that leak in wherever people are gathered. They don't tolerate it, not just the sin itself, but the people who are in patterns of it. And that's really hard to do in a church. We tell ourselves that there really shouldn't be any difficult conversations, that if there's real love, everything should flow smoothly. Let me ask you, how's that working between you and your kids? If you really loved your kids, think about it. You should never have an awkward conversation. It should never be difficult because there's so much love, it covers all the issues. Love is the oil that makes everything easy. Is that really the way it works? How's that working in your marriage? Maybe you just need to love each other more. Or maybe it's not about the volume of your love. It may have something to do with our understanding of love as well. So the Ephesian church didn't tolerate wicked people. They dealt with them. I'll give you a couple of examples from some pastor friends of mine I've heard in the last couple months. At one particular church, there was a young guy, a little lonely, approaching about 30 years old, really, really wanted to be married. He's getting a little desperate. And so he would, in the church, in the lobby, and as people would walk out to their cars, he'd find these young, young-ish adults, single ladies, and he would just like really, you know, well, basically, you know, Trying to hit on him. That's really what he was doing, which is not wrong. That's not immoral, right? But it's like he didn't understand personal space. So there, he didn't realize that we all have an imaginary three-foot line. If you didn't know, I do. I, I'd, like, I'd, and if you, I'd like to invite you in. I don't want you just coming in to my three-foot space. And so he would, not in, necessarily immoral, just inappropriate. He'd be like, you know, kind of a little touchy. And he just made people feel uncomfortable. Like never cross a line to overt sexuality. Like, it just made them uncomfortable enough that a lot of women just stopped coming. And they kind of got a little reputation about that in their church. And so guess what the leadership had to do? They had to deal with it, which was awesome to set that guy down. Imagine how awkward that was. Hey, you're making people uncomfortable and they don't know you. And so they're reading the worst into your behavior. And a lot of them have stopped coming. That happened literally to my friend of mine within the last month. So he has the conversation, which is the right conversation to have. But then that guy's friends are all ticked that he dealt with that. So that's not even a theological issue. It's just a church issue. It's just a people issue, right? And that's the kind of conversations that leadership has to have. That's the kind of conversations you have to have in your home, and it's all good until there's some relational stuff that has to happen as well. But the Ephesian church did a great job of making sure that the core values and the core mission of the church didn't get distracted by the silliness that happens when humans gather. That's hard to do. If you've been in church for any length of time, you've seen how humanity and fallenness impacts the mission of the church. That's why there are a lot of churches that are not after the mission of Jesus. The Ephesian church was hardworking after the mission. They didn't tolerate people. Look, look at this next one. That you have tested those who claim, you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. So there were some other people who looked like leadership, who acted like leadership, but you realized and you put into place that while the church can become as you are, you never lead as you are. You don't do that. So you got to test leadership. There's a higher standard for leadership. And that's how it works. 
And so not everybody gets to be leaders. So guys, you've done a great job of testing. You found out that some people were not really apostles. They weren't really called by God. And you did the vetting work and you were able to label that thing, which again, very scary because you're not supposed to do that stuff in our modern culture. But you did it to protect the mission. So good job. Jesus says this stuff is good. Now, I'd love to know. I'd love to sit down with the leaders of the Ephesian church and go, how did you do that? How'd you guys walk through the messiness of humanity to lead church very well and stay white hot about the mission? Like you kept working hard. Look at what he says now. You persevered. You've endured hardship for my name, and yet you have not grown weary. I'm reminded of Paul's words in Galatians. Do not grow weary in doing what is right, for in a due season you will reap a harvest if you do not faint. Now, it's always okay to stop things. Adults can do whatever they want. But perseverance over time is how everything good happens, right? So you've done really, really well. Awesome. So by the way, this is the point in the job review description where everybody's loving one another. But remember, we start with the good stuff. So now we're going to turn and we're going to see some other priorities of Jesus that are priorities for the church at Ephesus, but also for every member of the body of Christ, including us today. Here's what it says. Yet I hold this against you. That's the breaks. We were having a love fest. We're all in the love van. And now we just stopped and somebody wants to get out. I hold this against you. By the way, <laughs> Jesus doesn't kind of do what I do, which is, hey, you got something for you to think about. That's appropriate sometimes. Jesus is just, I want to give you some honest feedback. Here's what he says. And this is surprising to me. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Whoa, wait, wait, wait. They're hardworking, they're persevering, but something's wrong in here. Did you know this? You can be religiously involved. You can stay in a marriage. You can continue to have kids in your home and technically be a parent and your heart not be in it. Did you know that? You know that happens? It happens. It, it happens to some degree to every person. There is a movement in and out of full heart engagement, sometimes even when the behaviors of engagement stay in place. That's normal. It's not wrong for that to happen. It happens. The problem is, is that when it happens and then it continues to happen and now it's already happened and it's kind of locked and loaded, we're in trouble. In marriages where the hearts grow colder over time, you can have a cold heart for a little while. That is a cooler heart. You can have moments where you don't feel as much in love. But if it stays there, you're headed for trouble. If the loving things aren't growing, you're in trouble. The same thing's true in your relationship with Jesus. There's usually a season on the front end where there's not only the behaviors, but there is inside kind of a beating heart soft for the things of God. Let me give you a couple things to think about. For me, this, this is me. You'll have your own, but just see if you can connect. I remember I grew up in church for the most part since I was five. And um, I remember as a teenager pressing through my faith, like, is it my faith? Is it my parents' faith? Do I like this faith? Do I like this church? I... And I'm going through all this stuff. And I remember in one particular service, I can almost take you back to the spot, I think in terms of events anyway, that's how my mind works. And the church is singing the song Amazing Grace that I've heard a hundred times. I know it by heart. The minister of music in our church is just a really nice guy that worked down at uh, what we now call Maytag. He worked down at Maytag, and he's up there. He doesn't get paid. It's a very small church, and he's like, turn the page. I knew the page number. Amazing Grace. There it is. So I don't turn the page. I know all the songs by heart. Still do. We start singing Amazing Grace, and something happened to me. It's like in that particular moment, the song I had sung a hundred times, just because that's what you do, became alive, and I reflected on the fact that I was a recipient of the grace of Jesus. And our church... Somebody will give life to Jesus. It happens a lot. Over the last several years, we've averaged over 100 a year. It's incredible. I'm blown away by that. And you'll see these people who just kind of get engaged in church. And man, they are just eager to serve. They love it. I remember the first time I was given an opportunity to be responsible for a class, a Sunday school class. We had a traditional Sunday school. And I remember every week I couldn't wait for it to begin. And I was just, I was doing the thing and I was white heart engaged white hot heart engaged. This church is still doing the thing, but there's something happening in the heart. Look at what he says. Consider how far you have fallen. Consider. 
repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove the lampstand from its place. The lampstand's the church. In other words, if you don't get this right, it's going to be lights out for you. It's going to be lights out. You can't afford to not attend to the heart stuff. This is sobering from Jesus. And so why would he do this? Does he want them to feel pain? No. He loves them. And he doesn't want them to go to a place where they can no longer be who he's called them to be. But if you, ha- you have this in, in favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, a group that was kind of doing the wrong thing, which I also hate. And then he says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious... To the one who is victorious, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, yeah, you got some problems, but you can press through. And here, here's the difference. You repent. You turn and go the right way. You open up your ears. Hear. Don't, like, don't just listen. Hear it. Let it come in. Let it come in. Let it come in. I'm going to blow through a handful of points. All right, so here we go. At Ephesus, Ephesus endured imperfect people and situations that proved the church is a hospital for sinners and not a museum for saints. It is a hospital for sinners. They had to endure because they had people they had to endure. They had to endure because there were situations to endure. That is not unusual. That is normal. There are people around here who need extra grace. And all of us need extra grace on occasion. That is normal. But you can't endure that. Here's the challenge, though. Sometimes when your faith grows older, your heart turns colder. Sometimes when your faith grows older, your heart turns colder. And what the enemy we'd love for you to do is to keep you involved in activity and have your heart start turning away from the Lord, from the Lord's church and the Lord's people. It's really hard. It's really hard. High capacity volunteers who carry a big load in the church, it's not unusual. You know, maybe I'm going to make up a number. You know stats. It's like Abraham Lincoln said. You can, on the internet, you can only believe one-third of what you read on the internet, Abraham Lincoln. You, you know that? Just a stat like that. Maybe one in seven volunteers, high-capacity volunteers, they're going to go through a season where it's just disconnect, and they're doing the thing, and they keep doing the thing for a while, but the heart has been hardening. Right? It happens. So let me give you a handful of pastoral statements here. Here's some symptoms the heart's growing cold. You're smart people. I won't unpack this for you. Here it is. Number one, complacent. What used to be a priority, what used to get your best, now it's getting all the leftover. And you kind of have a laissez-faire attitude. There's casual. Intentionality has been replaced by if I can get to it. And there's compromise. Things you didn't used to say or do or be a part of, now you do. And if you were totally honest with yourself in a healthy place, if you looked at yourself, you'd be embarrassed by yourself. Three common causes I hear to explain the drifting heart. I got bored. I got hurt. I got distracted. I got bored. I got hurt. I got distracted. Now, I'm a pastor talking about church because that's the context here. Just do your marriage. I got bored. I got hurt. I got distracted. Every single affair that ever happened in a church, pick one, pick two, if all three perhaps, that's what happened. Every heart that I've seen turn away from Christ where they're still involved, still around, but their heart isn't in it, and there's a coldness, and it's becoming clear. Every time I got bored, I got hurt, I got distracted. And Jesus says, if that's where you're going, if that's where you are, if any of this resonates, if you have ears to hear and the Spirit is whispering at all, here's what you do. You repent boldly. That's the word Jesus used. That's not Ben's word. You can be mad at me for it, but I didn't say it. Jesus said, you repent. He, in other words, you quit going in this direction. You stop And you go back to the things you used to do. Let me give you three of them. Three practices to stay hot. Daily devotions. We've been talking for the last couple years with clarity about the first 15 minutes of your day. Listen, again, I'm going to tell you my observations. You can disagree with me. You're welcome to. I've never known a marriage go through a divorce. Never. Where the husband and the wife both spent 15 minutes a day in the Word of God. Now, I don't know... If it's a one-to-one thing, that if you stay in the Word of God, you don't get divorced. I don't know. I don't know if it's more of an indirect thing. You stay in the Word of God, your heart is open, you do the disciplines, the Lord whispers and speaks, and you make minor adjustments, and you just don't get there. But I've never known it to happen. I've never known a follower of Jesus to burn out if they stayed in the Word of God daily. 
I've known a lot of burnt out people spend lots of time in the word of God for 30 days while they were burnt out and not get much out of it. That's just me. I'm not saying there's a science or an absolute there, but there's something powerful about the word of God. Number two, weekly worship. There's something powerful about coming with an open heart in a communal setting, in a corporate setting, and opening your heart and singing songs, opening the word of God together and being open to what the spirit says. One of the biggest challenges in our church is we have some leadership capacities and volunteer roles where people can't be in weekly service. It's just the nature of it. And if you do kids every week, you can't be here. So it's really hard. And the problem is, is over time, I've just discovered that if you're not in with some regularity, corporate worship with brothers and sisters, something begins to move. There's a space made. And so we encourage everybody to make it a priority. And I say to every volunteer, look, if you're like drying up where you are, the best gift you can give to the people you're serving in this church is to resign. Come back to church. Get your heart soft before the Lord again. Number three, monthly ministry. Monthly ministry. That is where you serve others at least monthly. Let me give you my final point, and then we're going to go into our next steps. Listen. No church is perfect, no marriage is perfect, no parenting is perfect. There's so much similarity between those three categories of life. They're all very important. They're all vehicles by which God works. So none of them are perfect. But a church without love is lethal. A church without love is lethal. A marriage without love is lethal. Parenting without love is lethal. Doesn't work. And eventually, it'll be lights out. So the letter of Jesus to the Ephesian church shows us the priority he has, that a heart soft and pliable before God, doing the work and soft and pliable is what he wants for every single one of us. Rabbit about the mission, but expressing love, even when we have to do the hard work of telling the truth. And this is really hard to do. It's hard to do in your marriage. It's hard to do with your kids. It's hard to do in a church. What I thought we could do right now is we could take a couple steps. The first one being that today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you've gotten a small snapshot of his heart for people in this little letter. And there's so much more there. He loved us all enough that he gave his life on a cross and yet he didn't stay dead. The Bible says if you put your trust in that, you can have a relationship with him that will last forever. If you want to do that, take the pen Mark the box, put it in the offering bucket when it comes by. And when it comes by, um, drop it in there and we'll communicate with you this week. But in a second, we'll pray about our next steps and uh, we'll give God a chance to uh, do his work in our hearts. And you can do some business with God saying, God, I'm a sinner, save me. Next step B, today I'm choosing to be baptized. On April 5th, we have our next baptism, 10 o'clock, one service only. Come at 9.15 or 11, you're going to be missing it. So 10 o'clock right here in this room and we'll do a big baptism Several people already have expressed interest and already signed up. If you have questions, this is how you begin it. You check the box. Next step C says, Lord, my heart has grown colder. I repent and I return. I'll do the first things over. So listen, I don't need to know the details, although you can tell me on the back of your connect card and I'll pray with you. But just boldly before the Lord and the prayers of this team as well. Yeah, I, I got some heart work to do. It's okay. If you're coming from another church here checking us out, there might be some of that going on. If you've been following Jesus in the same position and role for a while, there might be some of that going on. You wouldn't be unusual. And the Spirit says to you, to all of us who might be there, repent and turn. All right? Next step, D. It says, I'll make weekly worship a greater priority than I've made it. That's not a statement of what I want from you. It's a statement of what I want for you. When you turn your eyes to Jesus, open your heart to the Word of God, it makes a difference. Next step, B. Who would say, I'm in to help with the best week ever? So if you are, check the box, big or small, prayer, time, whatever, check it. And this week, you'll start seeing some of the specific roles that are available. We'll get you lined up to make this the best week ever uh, for this year in the life of our church. And we'll serve families in North Cincinnati. Would you put your cards away? And uh, if you call this church home, it's your opportunity to give back to the Lord a portion of what he's blessed you with. And uh, just very boldly, um, it takes money to do ministry. And in our church, people have been very, very faithful. If you're our guest, your primary gift for us is to put your Connect card in there. You're certainly welcome to participate. If you do, you know that every penny you give is on mission here. We'll use it to help people in North Cincinnati 
have their best opportunity to become fully developing followers of Jesus. Let me tell you how excited I am lately to spend some money. Um, on July 29th, that weekend kicks off our best week ever. And that first Sunday, we're going to dedicate our new space. There's some things that we're going to do to celebrate some investment people have made of time. There's one particular person who just above and beyond has helped make our children's ministry phenomenal. And I think you're going to love to be a part of that. I ask you to be here. But we can only do that because you guys have given. And uh, man, it looks phenomenal. Eight bathrooms, multiple classrooms, multiply improved space. And if you haven't been back there lately, you need to go back and see the time and effort and energy and money that's been put in to make this ministry for kids one of the best in the cities. And I just want to say thank you for that. It means the world to me, and it will mean the world to the next generation for the next several years. Let's bow our heads, pray about our next steps in our offering. Father, thank you for what you're doing. I thank you, Lord, that you walk among the lampstands. You walk among our church. Not a single conversation about this church have you not been in the, in the room to be a part of. You've heard every word, every whisper of the heart, every plan made, and you have an opinion about it all. So I ask you, Father, affirm what needs to be affirmed. Convict what needs to be convicted. Purify your church, Lord. We don't want it to be said of us that we had a good run for a while, but our hearts grew cold. Father, I pray boldly that love would grow in this place. And we know how to express it when it's easy. We know how to express it when it's hard. I lift up every man and woman in this room who's married. Help them to endure. Now, Father, would you take our next steps? Would you take our offerings? And would you help the impact of them to go far and wide, further into your kingdom, further for your glory, further for the mission of the church? And for every man and woman in this room who's declaring right now, Jesus, save me, wash away my sins. I trust nothing but your shed blood and your empty tomb. I declare, Father, that they are made new in Christ on the authority of your word. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.